When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and this is another episode of the Tax Alpha Podcast. I'm excited today because today on the on the podcast we have Elizabeth Whitman, and she is with Whitman Legal Solutions. She is an attorney, a securities attorney with an LLM in securities from Georgetown Law. Not something you hear every single day. And her primary line of focus is she is knowledgeable about private placement real estate funds and 1031 exchanges, particularly with a tenant in common. Sometimes you know, your tick or tenant in common structure that can qualify for a 1031 exchange. And uh, she advises high net worth clients and security sponsors when they put together these structures. So Elizabeth, thanks so much for coming on today. Pleasure to have you. Great to be here. So um, I think maybe start by telling you a little bit about my background for people who haven't read the bio is um, in addition, I got my, I have my LLM and which is an advanced law degree you get after you get your regular law degree in securities. I spent different types of real estate-backed securities most of my career. Um, I spent more than a decade as general counsel for a real estate security sponsor and a captive property management company. So I know a little bit about how those deals are put together from the back end because I help do it. And I still do that for real estate sponsors. I represent real estate sponsors in putting together their deals from start to finish, turnkey representation. Um, and I also, though, represent some real estate investors who are investing in the higher, higher level investments um, who want to structure a unique structure to perhaps invest with a tick alongside of a real estate fund or want to do some kind of a passive investment that can qualify for like kind exchange, or if they have questions about how their funds put together and whether this is just a really good idea or not. Sure. So that's, sure. that's what I do. I'd say that right now, real estate is getting a lot of attention. We're dealing with you know, forecasted inflation. Fed's out there forecasting increase in interest rates, um, which is going to signal inflation. And traditionally, real estate is a great hedge against inflation. And we're seeing it already. Real estate prices are skyrocketing. I'm sure if anyone's gone on Zillow and looked up what their home's worth even, it's just gone through the roof. I know mine has. You're seeing rents skyrocketing. Uh, I do a lot of multifamily work for sponsors and the rents are just going through the roof. It's unfortunate for the tenants um, now that all the rent assistance from the government is, you know, for COVID is gone, but it's a good thing for investors because they're seeing, you know, real estate isn't very sophisticated in how it's priced. You basically look at um, the cash flow or net operating, really the cash flow coming out of it. You apply a, you know, a cap rate or discount rate, and then that's your value. It's not a sophisticated calculation. So when the revenue goes up or the expenses go down, 
your real estate's worth more. And right now that's what we're seeing is revenue going up. So I'd say it's a great time to invest in real estate. And in particular, for people who want passive income, um, real estate funds like I put together for my clients. There you go. Well, let's play into that a little bit. So you said great time to invest in real estate. So the real estate market has been red hot over the past few years. So are people late to the party right now? Is it too late to the game to get into the real estate market? I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I There's a real estate cycle that has been uninterrupted for something like 200 years. It runs about 18 years. And unless there's some catastrophic thing or the government starts messing around, which of course we've seen the Fed messing around with interest rates, um, it's 18 years. And it goes, we, you know, COVID brought the previous cycle to a premature end. And again, something catastrophic. But what happens is it builds up, builds up, builds up. There's growth. And as people see rents increasing, you've got, you know, it's the supply demand thing. There's not enough supply. There's more demand. Prices go up. People start building and they build and they build and they build until you get an equilibrium. And eventually they tend to overbuild. And once they overbuild, that's when you see stabilization. You see some of the lesser quality properties, maybe even have a slight decline. And the market goes down, the building stops. And that's what, of course, what happened with COVID um, early. Then the whole cycle starts over again. And the whole thing tends to take about 18 years. Again, it's been consistent, literally going back 200 years, except when the Fed was messing with interest rates in the 70s. And of course, COVID you know, brought us to a premature end. I think the cycle was maybe 15 years or something because COVID did kind of make it plummet. But now we're on the, on the upswing and we probably have, I'm guessing, another you know, three, four years of upswing as people start building. And of course, it's uncertain. What's, what's the supply chain issues going to do to this if they slow down construction? What's the Fed going to do to this? As they increase, you know, obviously, as they increase interest rates, mortgage rates go up for many people. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but I still think there's time. Okay. Get the real estate. Well, look, I'm sure you follow the trends like I do. And I don't, you know, I agree with you that real estate runs in cycles. I think all asset classes run in cycles, right? Um, and if you understand the housing imbalance from a supply and demand standpoint in the United States right now, especially in the smile states and the people where you have domestic migration and relocation, where people want to go to submarkets that are having growth, right? Maybe it's better weather, better political climate. You know, I think the I think COVID has exposed some bad political environments that people don't want to live in anymore, right? So people are looking for new submarkets in the path of growth cheaper, you know, maybe let's not say cheaper, but more affordable, more economical, a better political environment, better tax environment, you know, and where they where they want to be. And there's a big supply and demand imbalance. Like I've, there's literally statistics out there that talk about right now today, we have more product being taken off the market due to aging out from functional obsolescence than new product can be delivered to market. You know, I'm sure you can speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. And I mean, in, in multifamily, we're seeing a lot of that, you know, where the people are just there's so much demand and people are interested in getting into the market. But what's interesting that there's also an opportunity in the places where there's surplus on um, the office. Right now, people mm-hmm. don't want their big offices anymore. They're going hybrid. They're doing hoteling at their offices. They're moving some kind of shared office environment. I mean, my husband now goes to the office twice a week. You know, they, they share their space with each other. No one has their own office. So with that going on, that can be seen as, you know, as declining area, but it also can be seen as an opportunity as you repurpose those um, spaces for something that's new, different, and modern. And 
of course, that's higher risk. Whenever you're going into something that's not stabilized, which this isn't, it's higher risk, but it's a great opportunity if someone wants to invest and take a big risk and get on the front edge of an issue and move forward and make change in that market. You'll see the same thing in retail, I think. In certain aspects of retail, like malls, you're seeing repurposing of malls. They're being moved into mixed-use spaces. Uh, and very, and the whole concept is, you know, you hear about colleges moving into some of the big box spaces, some of the community colleges. You're seeing residential space. You're seeing senior housing moving into those. So there's lots of opportunity even in the declining, you know, sectors of real estate. Sure. I agree. You know, it's office is a, is a really interesting time. We've got a client that's in the process of acquiring a uh, an office building that the last time it traded was at 280 million and based on its NOI. And today they've got an offer on that building for between 70 and $80 million, which is below replacement costs to be able to potentially reposition and retenant that asset. And it's still a trophy asset in a highly desirable submarket, but it's just people, the unknown, the uncertainty, and they're leaning in and creating the opportunity. So I, I see a lot of that. So what are some of the opportunities you've seen from a rehab reposition of some assets that might be currently out of favor? I mean, one thing we're seeing in various, I mean, various places is repurposing of hospitality assets with hotels, because of course, travel is down, you know, hotels not doing so well in many cases, you're seeing them repurposed for things as housing, often senior housing, you're seeing that some of that in New York City and some of the bigger urban areas where they're just as a glut of hospitality house, hospitality properties. You're seeing office being repurposed as housing. There's a, there's a project, I'm in DC Metro in Northern Virginia, in my area, where they've repurposed an office complex dating back to approximately the 70s to be apartments. And it's now apartments and it's in a mixed use place. It's in a hot area near a metro stop, near a lot of restaurants. And it's now going to be housing. Um, even my own office building where I am, I actually have a private office, but it's in inside of a shared workspace. And what's interesting about this business model is the shared workspace was put together by the building owner. They had a floor of their building that they were having trouble renting. So they said, how can we repurpose this and make money from it? And they created a shared workspace. So there are people out in the common area, you know, who are working at desks. Um, They rent private offices to people like me who want space. They have people who have suites and they provide the services that go with it. And I think that's going to be a really hot area as people move to hybrid work. Um, working at home only goes, only works for so long. At some point, you need a change in scenery. And um, the shared workspaces can do that. And I think that's a great way to repurpose office. Yeah, I would agree. Fractionalization, right? It's a thing that's become real. I mean, obviously, WeWork took a swing at it. And, you know, uh, I think they got a lot of stuff right. Maybe they had some human capital issues over there. Maybe they're <laughs> You know, but so this is interesting. So talking about fractionalization, let me pivot on this a little bit. I'm curious to your opinion. I talk many times to investors about the difference between a syndication and a syndicator, because syndication is a process to be able to access a smaller equity slug of a unit. But a syndicator is somebody that's not really in the real estate business per se, but it's out there aggregating capital and acquiring assets. You have an opinion or any thoughts on the difference between the two? Yeah, and the syndicator term is used kind of loosey-goosey, too, because I've seen it used to describe real estate security sponsors, too. And that is a company like I was general counsel for, and I still represent some of these people who put together the deals. 
So sometimes they're aggregating them in a single fund. Sometimes they do one-offs where they'll sell units in a particular building. But um, obviously a syndication is the opportunity to buy into that collection of assets or into a fractional interest in those assets in some way. And the nice thing about this and that I've advocated for people for many years is diversification. They can get geographic diversification. They can get diversification in asset class. They can get diversification even in the quality of their assets. They can have some that are value add, some that are brand new construction and, you know, one need to be stabilized. So there's a lot of opportunity to, because real estate's high risk. We all know that it's always high risk, but it is an opportunity to diversify your high risk portfolio to cover all the bases or at least more bases than you'd normally have. Um, Another opportunity is obviously if you diversify among sponsors is you get the benefit of if one turns out not to really be so good, you don't, you're less likely to use your, lose your shirt because you don't have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Sure. So there's, there's that opportunity also. And another thing that in tax planning, I mean, I think we were discussing right before this, we don't know for sure what's going to happen with the tax laws because, you know, Biden's administration made a proposal and it doesn't seem to have gone very far. But one thing that's always on the chopping block is 1031 exchanges and, going after the supposed rich people who are taking advantage of all these laws, supposedly. And those people are the ones that are being targeted once again. And one thing that always seems to be targeted is long-term capital gains treatment. You know, we now are at low rates. I mean, because, or partly because I suspect the Trump administration, President Trump being in real estate was very good to real estate in the tax law and his administration. It probably won't stay this good. Um, right now, capital gains rates are below the optimal rate to generate revenue, and they probably will go up. But if a tax law passes that limits how much capital gains treatment you can get for a particular sale, if you diversify your assets, you're going to have lower gains from each sale than if you put all your eggs in one basket and have a single asset that has a big, you know, you hit a home run, suddenly you've got a whole bunch of taxes that are due. Whereas if you put it in multiple baskets, then you get incremental gains and you can plan better how to um, minimize tax, you know, taxes on those big gains that you get. Sure. Am I making sense? No, uh, yeah, you're all well to me, but you know, <laughs> I, <we're, laughs> to everybody else listening today, I don't know. We're only time will tell how much sense that made. So let me ask a question. I hear many times people talk about, yes, we want to, you know, tax the rich and we want to tax them on those capital gains. And now they're even talking about taxing on unrealized capital gains, which is crazy talk. Yeah, um, it is. Complete crazy talk. But let me ask you this question. You know, there's economists out there that constantly are writing reports and doing updates on research that they say, look, the opportunity cost of eliminating code 1031 and not giving high net worth clients the ability to exchange assets on a tax favored basis would actually be detrimental to the economy because when an asset trades, you hire plumbers and painters and you buy new stuff and you reposition the asset and there's taxes and economic drivers that happen throughout to redo that. And those far outweigh the capital gain taxes that would have potentially be paid on that asset. Do you have an opinion on that? I think that's true. I think it will significantly slow the real estate market. And as you point out, most people, when they buy a real estate asset, think they can do it better than the previous guy. 
and they're improving the asset. They're trying to be positioned that they're always trying to do better than the previous owner. And if you slow down trades of real estate, either by overly taxing gains where you discourage sales or by otherwise disincentivizing investments, you are going to reduce the overall quality of real estate assets in the country. And as you point out, there are trades who depend on commercial real estate for their income. And let's put not, you know, let's think about it also housing. I mean, we talk about the poor quality of housing for some people, for working class housing. I mean, the company I work for, its business was buying working class housing, improving it and making it better for the people who live there than, you know, obviously positioning it for sale. Uh, you lose that if you don't incentivize people to get, take those behaviors. I mean, my general position on taxes is there's two reasons we have taxes. And one is to make money for the government. But the second one that's equally important, maybe more important, is to incentivize behavior. And so we need to think about what behavior should the government be incentivizing. And of course, I'm very pro real estate on this. I think that they should be incentivizing real estate investment and real estate improvement because the dirt is the one thing they can't outsource to wherever other country we're outsourcing things to right now. Good point. Good point. Can't outsource the real estate. So let's lean into the tax benefits of that a little bit, because I think there's a lot of real estate investors that are familiar with the concept of 1031, whether they've executed on a 1031 strategy before or not. Right. Um, And if you read any of the research, it's, it can be very complicated for a non-institutional 1031 investor to be able to make an exchange and meet the requirements and the deadlines. But let's talk about what some of the other options are, because I know one of those things happens to be an expert of, you know, an expertise of yours in a tick or a tenant in common structure. So maybe let's talk about that a little bit. And then maybe on the back end, you can compare it to other security structures like a DST or some other stuff. And so that people understand that, there, that there's not just one way to skin this tax cat, right? There's quite a few ways. So lean into that. Okay. Well, first of all, I was did work for a tick sponsor many years ago, back when you could do sponsored ticks in with 30 investors. Now the law still allows it, but what happened was the mortgage companies post 2008 not so happy because they figured out when you have 30 unrelated people that you need to coordinate in the foreclosure is not easy. So you really can't do a tick anymore with more than, you know, maybe half a dozen max. Sometimes it's only three or four, depends on the mortgage lender. They call them ticks, tenants in common in a deal. So what I'm seeing mostly are rather than the syndicated ticks as such is I'm seeing a real estate sponsor that maybe needs some equity And they're bringing in two or three high net worth people to come in and provide that equity in a tick structure where, you know, they, where they're passive, but they're providing the equity for the deal. Now, when you do that, because it's often a smaller deal, you got to have a lot of confidence in the person that you're, it's your sponsor, obviously, that they're going to do their job. But the tick, the thing that's interesting about ticks is that the tick owner's actually own the real estate. It's not like a real estate fund where you're buying part of an LLC. When you have a tick, you might own through an LLC of your own, but it's your own LLC and you own the actual dirt building. Yourself, you have an undivided fractional interest, we call it law, meaning you have right to the whole property, some percentage of it. And you'll have something called a tick agreement that describes what the relationship is among the various owners. 
Um, you see, also see ticks when you have people buying vacation homes too, which is a whole other creature, but still something worth considering for people with high net worth. Um, how do you structure your vacation home, home ownership? That's also can be a tick. Interesting. Yeah. And you see that. family, yeah, families, you know, you start inheriting property, you end up with a tick, whether you want to or not sometimes. Gotcha. Makes perfect sense. So look, you know, a lot of people say real estate is, and you brought up a point here when you were just talking, a lot of people think you've always heard real estate is location, location, location. And that might be true, but, and the way I look at location, I think is very different than a lot of other people, because I believe that real estate is primarily driven off about a five mile radius of the submarket. It doesn't, the whole MSA doesn't matter because people live and function within a very much smaller confined space. And those supply and demand and economics in that five-mile circle kind of really drive the value of real estate. But my point that I wanted to make there was what you brought up was about it's really a people, people, people business. Because if you're going to invest in a tick or any other type, the person that's running this real estate, you know, what we say in the real estate business is a good real estate person can fix a bad real estate deal, but a bad real estate person can screw up a good real estate deal. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that might be the biggest lesson that for investors, whether it be a real estate fund, whether it be a tick, or whether it be just that they're trying to acquire even a whole ownership in real estate, you know, using a broker is finding even a property management company, finding people who have the sophistication and frankly, integrity to do a good job to do what's best for this property and make money for the owners, because it's not just skill, it's also integrity. That's right. Um, that's involved. That's right. We we kind of have a little saying, you bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yeah. <laughs> Find really good jockeys. They're going to win a lot more times than they're going to lose, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and there's plenty of good people out there who are sophisticated managers, do a good job in managing. Um, they tend to have specializations in asset classes or even subclasses like property types. Some are great turnaround people. Some are, you know, great stabilized property people. Some are great, you know, bringing a property to stabilization after development. They all have different skills. You know, some people have multiple skills, but it's really important to have the right property manager. It's important if you're going to buy a real estate fund or even a sponsored type tick arrangement to be with someone who not only has the skill and experience to do the job, but also the integrity that you can trust them um, with your investment. So I say, you know, I think for me, the way I kind of explain this to investors, sometimes I say there's a couple different ways to make money in real estate. Number one, you either take a dollar's worth of ingredients and you turn it into $2, right? Through manufacturing. So assemblage of land, zoning and entitlement, increasing the density, getting your permitting, your infrastructure, building the asset, assembling the sticks and bricks, right? Getting your certificate of occupancy, leasing it up, stabilizing, refinancing, selling an asset or managing it for cash flow, right? I think that's one yeah. way. I think another way is people that are in the distress business, right? Finding real estate for 25 or 50 cents on the dollar and turning it back into a dollar, right? Because they yeah. have the capabilities to work out whatever has gone wrong with a potential asset in the first place. Yeah, that's true. And there's, I think maybe even a third way. And a third way would be, I guess it's related to your first way, but to reduce the expenses, find excesses in operation and reduce them. And one thing um, that I've seen done that the company I work for and many of my clients do, and it's really hot item right now, ESG. You can't not talk about environmental. Well, guess what? You've got these old properties. 
They've got showers and toilets and they use a lot of water. You know how much water costs and you know who pays for it? It's the landlord pays for it. It costs a lot of money. You replace all those appliances with low flow toilets, you know, low flow showers. You can save a lot of money. You bring down your expenses. You bring up your net operating income. Your property goes up like that. Same thing with lighting. If you move to high efficiency lighting, yeah, you're paying some money up front, but you are reducing your expenses and you're doing something that's good for the environment. So who doesn't like that also, right? That's right. A capital expenditure, CapEx, into a piece of real estate might hurt now, but at the end of the day, it's going to change the economics on the real estate from a cash flow perspective, which is your net operating income, which is then factored against your cap rate, which gives you a more favorable exit if you're looking to sell the asset, right? Yeah, you got it. It's not real estate finance is not sophisticated. It's NOI cap rate value. I mean, it's just not... It's not that stop complicated. Say, stop saying that. I, I want them to think <laughs> it's all like black magic and witch doctory so that I come across way smarter than what I really am. Don't make it sound like it's so simple. Well, but I mean, when you're looking at value, how they value it, people buy it, that's how people value it. I mean, people may disagree on what the potential NOI is, and that's where the magic is. It's in the underwriting. It's in understanding where you can find cost savings and where you can increase rents and the pace at which you can do it. That's where the magic is, I think, is in the underwriting. Sure. Understood. And so for me, everything that you just said actually comes back to a prior comment. It's people, right? It's people with expertise in asset classes that know how to find operational efficiencies. It's the quality of the sponsor and the qualities of the human looking at the real estate and their experience and the ability to execute, whether it's Asset class specific, like hospitality in a certain sub-market, maybe they know the supply and demand economics of certain geographic regions, like having a layer of a level of expertise in an asset class, in an area, and a track record. We've done this before. So, hey, you know, we've talked a lot about the quality of real estate and where all this is going, but like, how do we find quality people that are going to manage or any of these real estate elements for us, whether it's the construction, the development, the value add, the reposition, the property management, whatever it is, how do we find good quality people looking at it through your lens? Well, I mean, first of all, good quality people tend to have connections. So of course, you'd go to your advisor, someone like you, you might go to your real estate broker that you know, you can also look at some of these websites, like the real crowd and some of these, but those not necessarily there's a lot as a big mix there. And so if you're starting to evaluate a sponsor, um, a couple things to look at one, I mean, experience, there's not much there's no substitute for experience because I remember this sounds a little different, but I mean, once um, I was sending my, my father into surgery and the surgeon, I was like really worried. This is high risk. And she said, I've been doing this for 25 years. Nothing can happen that I haven't seen before and don't know how to fix. And the same thing kind of tends to be true of real estate. If the sponsor has been around long enough, they saw how things tanked in 20 in 2008, they know how to recover from a recession. They know how to position assets for recovery, even in bad circumstances. I mean, that speaks to their sophistication and their ability to deal with even the bad times, because most people can do well in the good times. It's the bad times you want to be able to do well in. Um, Integrity, reputation, those obviously are of critical importance. You don't want someone who's, who's taking advantage of you, who's not using your money wisely. So you want integrity. Um, track record. I mean, no, you know, prior performance doesn't guarantee future results, but a good track record ups ups your odds. You know, it's kind of like the horse you mentioned, you know, if they have a good track record, their odds of doing better, doing well in this race go up. 
no guarantees, but it does help. And looking at the, their due diligence, the quality of the due diligence. There are so many things if you have a you know, not sophisticated due diligence process that they can miss. And those things can be expensive. I mean, a good due diligence should involve going through every inch of that building and looking at it. If it's multifamily, you go in every rental unit you can possibly get access to. If it's an office building, you go through all the units. If it's a hotel, you look in all the rooms. You don't just look at the ones that the owner wants you to look at. You look at the whole thing. You hire a third, they hire third party experts to evaluate that property to be sure that the property, you know, they know what they're buying. It, may, it will be perfect, but at least you know what you're getting into the best you possibly can. Now there's always surprises, but that's what helps your odds and sophistication and in a sponsor and experience teaches them what they need to look at and what they might be able to, to bypass this time around, depending on the asset class and the asset type. So outsourcing third-party due diligence to people. So I would say, you know, from my perspective, um, background checks on every human that's going to be involved, criminal and financial, right? Make sure financially they're capable of doing this. And from a criminal perspective, make sure that they're just not bad humans, right? Um, thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, you often can't do that. But what you can do is, I mean, you can certainly do a criminal check. And the SEC also in the Securities Commissions, they do sanction people who have a history of bad behavior. And, you know, someone can't stay in the business a really long time, usually, um, if they're not doing things somewhat right, if they're not at least honest, you know, they have to have some level of integrity to be able to stay in the business. And I'll tell you, real estate sometimes is the wild, wild west. And there's a lot of people, the barriers to entry in real estate are not that high. So that's why experience and connections and sophistication become extra important. It's not like being a lawyer where you have to go to school for three years and pass a test. It's, you know, you take one few classes, which is significant and pass a test and you're suddenly a broker. I mean, I'm a broker. I just had to pass the test, you know? Um, So it's gotta be, you've got to look more to the track record and experience. Um, the people. Understood. No, well, look, and so, okay, so let's take that a little bit farther. What about, um, so somebody puts together a pro forma, some underwriting assumptions on the front end of the deal, their business plan before they go in. What about look, having an outside third-party accounting firm, an outside third-party law firm, look at their assumptions and stress test that, you know, they've built the right, you know, tolerance into each one of those light items to make sure that they didn't price it at perfection, you know, that they've got to hit it exactly perfectly to make it work. What about thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the investor, and obviously you have to look at the economics for the investor perspective. But before you invest a significant sum of money, the investor should have their own experts in their court um, evaluating that pro forma. And it has their own expert, of course, has to be someone who understands the industry and understands what makes sense. Because as you pointed out, it's very submarket oriented. One submarket might be able to you know, support moving a property from C plus to A minus and another submarket, maybe you can't go past B and still make money, you know, because of the of the submarket itself. And so understanding, you know, not every property can go to an A plus and be beautiful and still pay for it, pay for those renovations. And so understanding the market, it has to be very localized and understanding how to evaluate the properties. 
Well, I think that statement flows into a little bit of the hubris of a high net worth investor that might be good at real estate in one submarket in an asset class and have hit it out of the park and then maybe need to reposition to another submarket, another asset class. And they just make a general assumption. Well, I know real estate, right? But it's a completely different area, different submarket. And they think they're the expert on all real estate because of how they've succeeded in the past with real estate. Like you got an opinion on that. Well, yeah, that's kind of like me going out and saying, geez, I've been doing securities law for a really long time. That means that I'm a good criminal lawyer. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Not my field. And then that may be an exaggeration. But I think people get to know at a minimum asset classes and understand the asset classes. But you do need someone on the ground who understands that market. And there are sponsors who specialize in markets. They make it their business to understand you know, a few markets and really, really get those markets and understand what can be done in them. And those obviously are the people to seek out and look for. That doesn't mean that a sponsor who's going into a new market can't do it. But then you start looking at what kind of due diligence have they done? Who are they relying on in their due diligence? And examining, you know, challenging those questions. And frankly, a good sponsor should be willing to answer questions. If they're defensive about it, that's not a good sign. Maybe they don't have an answer for you. Yeah. Yeah. I know a real estate investor that any average person would consider this guy like a genius, right? And he builds, he's built a couple of big storage buildings. Well, one of them leased up almost instantly and was able to sell it so fast at a crazy number. And the other one, he tells people, oh, well, we decided we wanted to hold on to that one and we've leased it up at a slower rate. We're going to hold that one for cash flow. The reality is, is he didn't build a business plan on either one. He was winging it on both. One of them happened to be in a great sub market. It just has so happened to take off and the other one wasn't, but he had no idea why one worked and why one didn't, but yep. the guys worked like 20 million bucks. So people just assume, oh, he has to be a genius in what he's doing. And I'm like, no, he's cowboying stuff. And he just got lucky one time and the other time he didn't. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even the most sophisticated people have investments that don't work. It's sure. just that they may have more investments that do work as compared to those that don't. So no one's perfect. No sponsor is perfect. No. Um, I don't think a lot of sponsors, I suspect, got help, got stuck holding the bag when COVID hit because that was completely out of the blue. Who would have thought, you know, and people who were expecting to have another couple of years to stabilize and sell lost that. People who were in hospitality, I mean, that was a disaster, train wreck. And, it, you know, it was it just happened. So life happens, too. Yeah, no, for sure. Look, I so I know some sponsors in the hospitality space, hotel hospitality space. I know some guys that had a $1.3 billion portfolio that got wiped out, right? Because their debt levels were too high and they couldn't sustain it over the COVID with no rev par. And then I know other sponsors that had to cut their distributions, but didn't lose any assets. And as a matter of fact, had other people calling them going, we need help on our asset. What are you going to do? So they pivoted to a distressed debt situation on all these other funds and were able to acquire other assets, you know, in a position and become opportunistic because of how good they were from a human capital standpoint in a crisis in the hospitality space. So, yeah, I've yeah. seen those things. It makes a big difference. Yeah. And I mean, people who, are, who went through 2008 might be, have been a little better equipped to go through um, 2020 and 2021 because but that was another kind of sudden 
drop, a fairly sudden drop. And yes, it was coming to the end of the cycle, but the end came a little faster than and more um, dramatically than people, I think, expected. Sure. Well, you know, I think the difference back then and now, one of the primary differences is the world got pretty loose on some of its underwriting requirements at that particular time. And today, it's still hard to get a mortgage on anything today. Underwriters are not messing around. They have not really become lax on the way to obtain a mortgage. From my perspective and what I'm seeing, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I agree that most lenders have not. And actually, that's something that real estate investors can take a bit of comfort with. Because if a real estate is usually heavily leveraged when it's first acquired. So no matter how much money you put in your real estate, the person who has the most invested in that real estate is your mortgage lender. They have 70% invested in, you know, the LTVs are down a little from where they were in 2008, but let's say it's 70%. They own 70% of that property coming out of the gate. And the mortgage lenders are also hiring the third-party reports. They're also doing their under- underwriting and they are challenging the underwriting that the sponsor is doing. So you have a little bit of comfort that at least you've got someone else who's looking at it who actually has more invested in the deal than you do. And looking at the quality of your mortgage lender and the type of mortgage loan also can be an indicator of the risk involved in the deal. If you have someone who's a sophisticated lender that's willing to put, you know, a 20-year mortgage on a property or ten, even 10 years in this market, that says a lot more than if it's someone who's given a, you know, a two-year floating rate bridge loan. You know, that doesn't say as much about the property. Now, that doesn't mean the one if the bridge loan isn't a good investment. It might be something where people are putting CapEx in and re- repositioning and repositioning it to go into like an agency debt situation or going into a very low interest rate situation. But it, you do need to look at those things is who's taking the risk and what risks are they willing to take? Interesting perspective, a way to look at real estate and the quality of the real estate based on the debt that it's capable of requiring. So from that perspective, if we're not talking about first position, how do you feel if something has like mez or bridge or whatever associated with it? How does that affect the quality of the real estate in your opinion? I think it depends on why they have bridge. I mean, mez, you really don't see much anymore unless it's in the form of equity that's concealed, you know, concealed MES, it's really equity technically. But bridge loans, I think you need to look at the business plan. If the reason for the bridge loan is you have an asset that there's going to be significant cap X put into, or that's otherwise going to be repositioned and business plan involves repositioning it, then a bridge loan may make sense. If you have an asset where there's, it's a short hold period, a bridge loan may make some sense. But if you have someone who has a you know, five-year business plan, has a bridge loan, and no plan of how they're going to get rid of that bridge loan, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I think what you, I think the real takeaway, and it's with all real estate and every aspect of real estate is what's our exit strategy? How do we get out of this position? It's not, yeah, you make your money on the buy side when you go in, but you have to know, have a defined exit and know how we get out of this. Who buys this asset? Do we refinance that? Where do we go with this asset? So understanding what you're talking about, if we take that debt on today, what's our plan to be able to get out from underneath that and exit that position and knowing that we can execute on that strategy? Yeah. And one thing I've been loving, not as much, it's, it's not as quite as good a strategy now, but I was loving like for the last couple of years is people in multifamily in particular going into this agency debt, these, these assumable HUD loans. Think about it. Fixed rate, 25 or 30 year loans at really low interest rates. Then when they go to sell, guess what? They not only can sell 
because the property's gone up in value, but they've got this assumable mortgage that's below market. That assumable mortgage has a value too that you can buy, you know, you can make money off your low interest rate mortgage. So that's always worth looking at. The money isn't always, you can make money from an assumable mortgage. Sure. No, absolutely understand. It's it's accretive to the long-term strategy of the real estate as you reposition or rehab yeah. the real estate. So absolutely agree. So we've talked about a lot of stuff and gone in a bunch of different directions today. What are some opportunities we see going forward from here, from things that have changed? Where's the puck going? I mean, that's a really tough question. Of course, I'm big on multifamily. A lot of my clients do multifamily. And I think that's still going to be a, a good field. We're seeing, interestingly, a lot of REITs going into single family homes. I don't think that high net worth individuals are going to want to invest in a bunch of homes and manage them themselves. Um, and they may not want to buy them down the street or buying into some of those funds, perhaps, that own single family homes and single family rentals or things that are temporarily being rented and may eventually be sold to you know, owner-occupied status or being renovated. Some of those have potential. I think developers that are repositioning assets, there's potential if you are very careful of the developer, make sure they have a viable business plan, repositioning the hospitality, repositioning the office, because many of those properties have, are being sold at deep, deep discounts, as you said, way below replacement cost. And while buying below replacement cost doesn't necessarily mean you can make money, um, it's a starting point. It's a good starting point. And with someone with a good business plan for repositioning, you can um, that can be a very profitable thing to do. But I think in the end, with real estate, it always you talk about location, location, location. And I think understanding the locations where there's high demand or where you expect to be high demand, understanding that diversification is important. If you put all your eggs in one basket, the odds go down. You might have made a mistake in that, you know, where you put it. Diversification in asset class, diversification in location. And you might even want to diversify the general business strategy, maybe some new development, maybe some value add, a little bit of everything to basic to give yourself a well-rounded portfolio. Um, the other thing to not discount is the tax benefits. Because even if the property doesn't go up in value, of course, everyone hates paying taxes, right? That's the thing people will do almost anything to not have to pay taxes. And some of the things that strategies that can give, you know, that can spit out a lot of depreciation that can be used to basically shelter the income, not only from that investment, but potentially from other passive investments, that maybe don't spit out as many expenses and depreciation can be valuable. It can be a valuable investment in and of itself if it defers your taxes to a future date. And of course, the ultimate strategy, assuming the tax law doesn't get changed, has been to continue to defer um, gains until you, until, until you die and then you get your stepped up basis for your heirs. That's right. Swap to you drop, baby. Swap to you yeah. drop. That's been the <laughs> traditional strategy. It doesn't, people need to understand though, you can't do a 1031 out of a real estate fund. They can sometimes do something called an upreit, but that can't be done unless pretty much everyone in the fund wants to do that. So you have to go the tick structure or as you mentioned, DST, although those are less popular now, if you um, want to be able to do the 1031s. 
Sure. So you, you brought up something. I want to pivot back to it for just a second because I find it interesting. Um, there's been a kind of, I would say we're in the first inning of this game, if it were a baseball game, when we're talking about single family rentals. And I believe for me, there's two different marketplaces. There's SFR, which is single family rentals, which is basically the rehab repositioning of an existing asset. And there's BFR, which is build for rent, brand new purpose built homes on a detached basis that basically feel like a multifamily. How do you feel about those asset classes and where this is going? Geez, that's a hard question because I think it depends on, again, location. I see a certain, I personally like the build for rental more in the senior context um, because I think that you see a lot of seniors, particularly in certain, you know, Sunbelt states. I think that's a place where that has a lot of potential, uh, but you have to be careful because those can be overbuilt as well. So, but those I think is, is a better position there. I think that holding on to the, we may be pushing towards the end of the single family um, renovate, you know, the hold for rental, but I don't think we're quite to the end of it yet, but the property values have gone up quite a lot. And if the mortgage rates go up too much, it's going to be hard to dispose of those properties. If you want to dispose of, dispose of them to an actual owner occupied situation, because the interest rates are going to be very, very high, but not impossible if they, if they stabilize. And again, it's also down to location. And looking at the management concept, who, what the asset class is, what's the quality of the asset? Um, are they clustered? I mean, you don't want a bunch of random properties all over the country. They need to be kind of in a geographic cluster with a cohesive management because the reality is anytime, and also frankly, a non-mobile tenant source, you want people who are going to be longer term renters because it costs money to turn properties and it costs money to turn an apartment. It costs more to turn a house. Because anytime you turn a property, you tend to repaint. You may have to do other renovations to make it attractive to the next tenant. So keeping those tenants there, and I think that's something to really look at is what can, what's the community like? Is it a community of tenants or um, is it a community where people rent for a year and then they move on? Sure. Understood. So we've talked about opportunities. Let's talk about challenges and let's talk about the elephant in the room. I think the biggest one in the room as far as how it affects real estate and potential headwind is interest rates, right? The long-term trend of interest rates is to zero or a negative interest rate, right? Because the world's hooked on cheap debt, cheap credit. But in the short term here, we've the Fed's trying to move all the levers they can and, and slow this thing down a little bit by, by pressing up interest rates. Where do you think this goes uh, short term? Where do you think it goes long term? And and, you know, uh, what's your opinion? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not an economist. I'll say that right up front. And that's, <laughs> that definitely is something that the economists have a lot more to say about than I do. In the short term, you know, the bottom line is mortgage rates are priced in the, in the current market. I don't think long-term rates have really been affected as quite as much as some of the short-term rates so far. Uh, if the Fed does some of the increases that it expects, that are expected, it may well start hitting the long-term rates. But what we also could start seeing is, you know, you talked about that bridge financing. If short-term rates are high, the bridge financing is going to get expensive and it's just going to push people to look at an alternative, I think. Uh, so there is that going on. But I think we do need to keep an eye on where things are going. Um, but we've had an invented yield curve for a little while right now, inverted yield curve, sorry, where yep. the long-term have been low despite the increases in some of the shorter term, short, short and intermediate term. So that's what's kind of interesting is you may still be able to get deals in the um, long-term mortgages 
And the other thing to keep in mind is no matter what happens to interest rates, the agency debt, the HUD, Fannie, Freddie, those are semi or entirely government subsidized and supported. And those may not necessarily always follow what the Fed does. There may be opportunity there if your property can qualify. And that's always the key because there are very strict requirements to qualify for those loans. Sure. Sure. Understood. Well, Elizabeth, this has been fun. I mean, we're kind of running at our time today. We're kind of right there at that threshold. It's been fun. I think it's been very educational, Um, you know, hopefully not over everybody's head because we did talk a little technical on some stuff today, but that's okay. Um, Any final thoughts, anything you want to close with? Just say that I think real estate continues to be a good investment. I think it's going to continue to be a good investment. And if you, even if, Someone invests when the market, you know, at the end of the cycle, the key, like is in any investment really, is don't panic. You hold, it will change. You just got to have, you know, the wherewithal to hold on to it until things turn, because that's one thing you can always be sure of in the market is it, it's going to change. Yep. Markets change over time. Absolutely agreed. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate you being on here today. Look, uh, tell, and we're going to post all this, obviously, you know, with, um, as this gets delivered in the podcast version, we'll make sure, but tell people how they would want to find you. If somebody found this super interesting today and they want to look you up and they want to find you, how do they find you? Well, my website, which I'm sure you're going to post it is www.whitmanlegalsolutions.com. Um, Whitman is spelled as I say, like the poet or my preference to candy and that I also do publish um, on JD Supra. So you can find me there and on Lexblog. So I do have a blog that um, talks about mostly real estate, but I also throw in some extra topics that interest me when they when I see them that relate to law. Very nice. Understood. Well, Elizabeth, I appreciate having you on so much today. I think the, you know, the insight that you shared and your expertise with listeners today, I think they'll find it extremely valuable. So thanks so much Perfect. for your time. And thank Absolutely. you for having me. Absolutely. Well, everybody today, thanks again for tuning in. This was Matt Chance. And this is the Tax Alpha Podcast. We hope you learned something today and we'll talk to you again next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chansey. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.